Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Koka. I've been thinking a lot about this idea of utopias, places of celebration or resistance or even joy. Sometimes the whole concept feels too good to be true or or like it's straight out of science fiction. But there are plenty of real examples throughout California history of people creating communities that nourish them, in particular places where people of color can thrive. Take the town of Allensworth, founded as a Black-led community in the Central Valley way back in 1908. A couple months ago, we brought you a documentary about Allensworth. The history shows a Black community that was prosperous. The history shows a community that was self-governed. They had elected officials here, a constable and a justice of the peace. No other Black communities really had anything like that. They had a functioning general store, a drug and pharmacy store, a hotel that housed travelers and transient business people. It was a shining example of Black self-sufficiency and prosperity. That kind of vision took courage to push back against the white power structure and racist housing policies and say, hey, we're going to build an intentional community where Black people can govern and flourish. It's an idea that hasn't gone away. There are examples of this kind of experiment across the decades. Today on our show, we're going to hear about a suburban development that sprung up in the 1950s in the Bay Area city of Richmond. Presenting a home community for all Americans. Parchester Village advertised itself as an integrated community, the first of its kind in Richmond. Parchester Village, California's newest suburban community with all the city advantages. Spacious lots with landscape front yards. Spanning just nine blocks, Parchester Village isn't a big place, but it holds an important slice of California history. Today we're exploring one of the first suburban neighborhoods to promise racially integrated housing, and we're going to learn how that community became a powerhouse of Black excellence, activism, and connection. As part of a collaboration with our friends at the Bay Curious podcast, reporter Ariana Prail visited to learn why Parchester Village was ahead of its time. You'd be hard-pressed to get lost in Parchester Village. There's a big loop road encircling the neighborhood of some 400 homes, like its own little bubble. It felt like family, like a safe place, like coming home from school. You knew all your friends were going to be around the, the neighborhood. They were all over the village. They were at the community center. But at night, you know, everybody's child went home. They knew when it got dark, it was time to go home. A number of homes still have the original, unique flat-top roof design. There's two active churches, as well as a community center and park. 
We were a progressive neighborhood. We really believed in community. Walking around Parchester Village, you'll notice the streets sound like last names. Williams Drive, Bradford Drive, Jenkins Way. They are, in fact, the last names of ministers who are revered for brokering a deal with a local politician and a wealthy landowner to create quality housing for Black Americans. It wasn't something given to them. It was because Black people had shown, had exercised their political muscle. Dr. Shirley Ann Moore is Professor Emerita of History at Cal State Sacramento. She wrote a book about the Black community's impact on Richmond before and after World War II. Many Black Americans left the South and moved to Richmond for jobs in the shipyards. When the war ended, the wartime housing projects where they lived were scheduled to be torn down. The post-war period saw a real frenzy of building uh, communities and homes and developments all around in the suburban areas, etc. But those developments that were going up, they were restricted on a racial basis. You know, the city officials and city fathers and others were hoping that those Black newcomers, all newcomers, but Blacks especially, would go back to from where they come. But that wasn't the case. No, it wasn't. the working-class Black community grew, becoming an influential political force in Richmond, a political force that was exercising its power not just in Richmond, but across the country, paving the road for the modern civil rights movement. Those working-class Black people took the lead. People who had been presumed not to be aware of the political currents around them were really in the vanguard. In 1949, a man named Reverend Guthrie Williams, a carpenter by trade, started organizing to end housing and workplace discrimination in Richmond. A self-described persistent, cantankerous cuss, Williams created the Universal Nonpartisan League to help bridge the racial divide. And he garnered a lot of support, you know, from those people living in the housing projects, and they became very valuable voters And white politicians began to see that, too. Amos Hinckley was one of those white politicians, a city council member running for re-election. He approached Reverend Williams and the League to support his campaign. Williams agreed in exchange for Hinckley's commitment to create permanent housing for Black people. Now, Hinckley was backed by Fred Parr, a wealthy developer who was key in building the Richmond Terminal and Kaiser Shipyards. Parr brought lots of industry to the Bay Area, like the Ford Motor Company plant in Richmond, a real power player who owned land. So Hinckley, the politician, arranged a meeting between Parr, the influential man with the land, and Reverend Williams, the organizer. And Reverend Williams told Mr. Parr, who owned a lot of land out in this area, along with Standard Oil, which is now Chevron, that we as blacks wanted to own our own homes, we wanted to have our own yards. Isaiah Turner is a former Richmond city manager who passed away in 2021. He was interviewed in 2001 for a documentary on North Richmond. And they agreed that if the ministers could help them sell the homes for this land out here that he owned, then he would support working with the black community so we could buy these homes. By the end of the meeting, Williams had a promise from Parr to back the housing development that would become Parchester Village. We advertised uh, that this was an American community. That was our slogan. 
That's John Park Hawks, Fred Parr's nephew, in a 1986 oral history interview. He says his uncle intended Parchester Village to be a place people of any race could buy a home. Heads up, he uses some outdated language in reference to people of Asian descent. I would say 30% of the sales were to uh, Caucasians and uh, the rest were to black people or uh, oriental people. Within a couple of years, the community changed completely to all black. We uh, we did not intend it uh, for anybody except those able to purchase. Historian Shirley Ann Moore says white flight was common at the time when white families fled neighborhoods where people of color were moving in. But some black Richmondites held the more cynical view that Fred Parr never intended for an integrated community to work out. Rather, it was merely an attempt by white politicians and power brokers in Richmond to maintain residential segregation while appearing to appease black demands. No matter the intentions of the white community, Reverend Williams, the cantankerous cuss, told a local newspaper that he wanted Parchester to be an all-American project, adding, quote, we hoped to set a standard of perfection and fair play in housing for the Bay Area. The black homeowners that moved there were at every intention of moving into an integrated, open community. But seeing that that was not going to be the case, they didn't say, well, you know, a pox on it and we'll just wait until that comes along. They were eager, as so many people were, black, white, or others were after the war, to to own their own homes, to get move out of those cramped and dilapidated wartime housing projects and break out on their own. The dream of a racially integrated community didn't work out. But the Black folks who moved in still created something special. The political pressure Reverend Williams and others placed on city leaders to build Parchester Village was just the beginning of what became an active, organized neighborhood association that advocated on behalf of residents and supported a vibrant community known for its safety, high-achieving children, and regular block party barbecues. My name is Garitha Johnson, and I'm from Richmond, California, but I've been a resident of Parchester Village for the last 20 years now. I meet up with Ms. Johnson at her home to hear stories about her childhood in the village's early years. She's invited her friend from down the street, Lori Hart, who also grew up in Parchester, to join us. And they're showing me the utmost hospitality, laying out a full spread of juice, coffee, and food for the three of us. My girlfriend can't help herself. You say a little bit of something, and she's going to give you a variety of Why things. am I going to short us? Everybody else get this. There's fresh pineapple, pastries, cheese and crackers, the rosemary kind. I found some Major Dickinson just for you. <laughs> Their warmth reminds me of sitting around the table with my aunt or grandmother. Help yourself. Right, get, let me grab my coffee. and I'm after Ms. Hart blessed the food, bless this food, allowed to give our bodies nourishment. Ms. Johnson starts telling me why her childhood in Parchester Village was so special. In my growing up here, we were really self-contained. We had our own store, our own gas station, our own nightclub. They would close off streets, and it was a block party. And you would have, like, say, like maybe on McLaughlin and Jenkins, like the Loop, they would have all the meat. 
And then on the streets in between, you would have like the desserts. And then you would have other streets that would do the sides. So you would walk and eat all day long. This neighborhood, you know, you couldn't get me out of here. I absolutely loved it. Mm -hmm. It was a place of safety. Right. We never locked our doors. I remember um, one of my best friends, uh, Lorna King, we wanted some Kool-Aid. Purple Kool-Aid, to be exact. But neither Miss Hart nor her friend had any at their houses. So I told her, I said, well, let's go to Pam's. And that's the lady that I babysat. So I opened the door. I said, Pam's got Purple Kool-Aid. And I, so I went in there and I wrote a note. Lori and Lorna took Purple Kool-Aid. That's the kind of neighborhood we lived in. You could walk into your neighbor's house, take something, leave a note, and it was fine. The neighborhood council came about because Parchester didn't belong to San Pablo or Richmond. And so there were no street lights. And from what I can understand, there weren't any sidewalks. And we had trouble with flooding out here. So there was a lot of infrastructure that wasn't taken care of. And so the homeowners got together and they petitioned the city. Now remember, Parchester was built on an empty plot of land. In those first years as a community, the neighborhood council successfully lobbied the county to get services like street lights and sewage through nearby San Pablo. Later, residents wanted the village to be incorporated into Richmond so they could access funding and infrastructure from a bigger city. They got their way, joining Richmond in 1963, but didn't stop there. We used to be extremely politically involved, and, you know, I remember he hearing about how they would go down to the city council and mm -hmm. raise some cane mm -hmm. if something was not right. And the council back then knew that Parchester had their back because mm -hmm. they would call them up. I'm going to need you to come. Right. And they're like, oh, here comes them, them, them village. And they were coming. For decades, Parchester residents fought for their community. Headlines from local papers highlight the many times they came out and made their voices heard. Giant highway traffic angers village groups. Councils fight city hall. Groups keep Richmond officials hopping. Residents unite against roadside dumping. And perhaps the headline that encapsulates them all, from The Independent and Gazette in 1980, The Little Village That Could, Success Thrives in Bustling Parchester. Ms. Johnson again. We were a community of many different professions, because at that time they wouldn't allow black people to... Um, by in other neighborhoods. So we had plumbers, you know, laborers, teachers, doctors. We had day laborers, construction workers, just everybody came together into one place. And so everybody took pride in their property. And it was anticipated and expected. You would be somebody right. growing up. I mean, you had the bookmobile. We were taught and encouraged to read. And we were taught to respect one another. Mm -hmm. And I really wish in all the communities that some of that stuff would come back. Changes started creeping into the community in the 1970s. With the collapse of suburban segregation, the village lost some of its original appeal. Black families looking to buy homes moved into suburbs around Richmond. And many of the local businesses had long since closed by the 80s which Ms. Johnson says were the worst years. And when crack hit the 80s, that's when the, the landscape really changed. It just kind of wiped through everybody's home. It's like everybody was touched with somebody who had got involved with that. 
In the early 90s, the fatal drive-by shooting of a neighborhood teenager rocked the Parchester community. In response, the village reasserted its values, starting a youth association to give young people positive things to do. By the early 2000s, many original homeowners still called Parchester home, and the block party barbecues were still in effect. But it was becoming harder to hold on to that founding essence and to homes. When the parents started passing away, that just changed everything. The older generation, kids gave up their homes, you know, moved out. You know, that's when the neighborhood started changing. This is Charles Etta Pruitt, a former resident. Her family was one of the first to settle in Parchester Village. She left for a couple years as a young adult, but moved back to raise her family. Once I got married, I came back. And, you know, it was still that community. That tight-knit, open-door place she'd known as a kid. It was a village that everybody's home was your home. You were cared about. They provided for you. But as time went on and families grew up and out, that strong sense of community has waned. Ms. Pruitt eventually remarried and moved to Stockton. She held on to her Parchester house as long as she could, but eventually sold it. Still, the village remains close to her heart. Parchester Village will live on. It will not ever be gone. It's always going to be home for me. Ms. Pruitt's story reminds me of a line in a report from UC Berkeley's Othering and Belonging Institute, which says, Home is housing animated. It is where the people, experiences, objects, and memories that make up our day-to-day lives are knotted together with broader relationships to people, places, and moments. Home is where housing and belonging come together. Like any neighborhood, Parchester has changed over the years. High housing costs have pushed many Black families out of the Bay Area. 20 years ago, Parchester was 80% Black. In 2020, the census showed it's now only 20% Black. And the folks who've moved in weren't part of the community's founding. They didn't fight to become incorporated. They don't remember the thrill of keeping the paving company out. The community knot that older residents remember has loosened a little. I love when I see families out here. It just warms my heart when I see the kids. Mm -hmm. The two friends I had breakfast with, Ms. Johnson and Ms. Hart, they still serve on the Parchester Village Neighborhood Council. They're proud that one of the last standing original Parchester institutions, the Neighborhood Center, has recently been renovated. It has a new garden, and they refresh the mural that features young Black kids playing on grass under the words, Parchester Village Touches the World. Ms. Hart has her sights on hosting a roller derby here. We're looking forward to that, trying to restore some of the glory of the old and just bring back some of the remembrance. I'm going to get a roller derby out here if it's the last thing I got to get on skates, and I can't roller skate. I'm going to get a roller derby out here because kids don't know what they're missing. Right, right. They really don't. That was reporter Ariana Preo, who discovered something fun while she was working on this story. Yep, it just so happens longtime KQED announcer Michelle Hennigan. I'm Michelle Hennigan. You're listening to KQED 88.5 San Francisco. Grew up in Parchester Village, and I got to meet her mother, Maxine Hennigan, who still lives there and attends neighborhood council meetings. I think it's exciting to be part of that 
history and knowing that the neighborhood where I live is actually organized and spearheaded by African-American people. Thanks to Doug Harris, Angela Cox, and the UC Berkeley Bancroft Library Oral History Project for their help with historical research on Parchester Village for this story. And now to a new effort to build community through a bookstore in Pasadena that will focus on work from BIPOC writers. On New Year's Eve, a woman named Nikki High, who worked at Trader Joe's as a communications director, responded to this tweet asking people to brag about one thing they were really proud of from 2022. I tweeted, I took the leap and quit my job to open my very own bookstore. Octavia's Bookshelf will open in February and features books written by BIPOC authors in Pasadena. So I I shared the picture of the logo and my store hours. Octavia's Bookshelf, open daily, 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. And I put my phone down, went to bed, and I woke up the next morning, and uh, it was just everywhere. (laughs) It went viral. Within days, her tweet had over 5 million views and 10,000 retweets. The responses were overwhelmingly positive. The bookstore is named after the famed science fiction author and Pasadena native Octavia Butler. She spoke with Democracy Now! back in 2005. I had a, um, a student come up to me at Michigan State University, and um, this was a young black woman uh, many years ago, and say, you know, I always loved science fiction. I, I've always wanted to write it, but I didn't think we did that. And she was afraid that if she got into it, there would be closed doors. And life is short. So um, sometimes people don't want to take the the risk of of, um, running into closed doors. Octavia Butler was the first Black woman to achieve major success in the genre, and she won multiple Hugo and Nebula Awards and a MacArthur Genius Grant. Octavia Butler died back in 2006, but she did a lot to pave the way for more writers of color. And now she's inspired the creation of a bookstore to celebrate her work. Nikki High joins us now to talk about Octavia's bookshelf. Hi there, Nikki. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So take me back to this moment, Nikki, when you just decided to take the leap and leave your job of 15 years and open a bookstore focused on BIPOC writers. I've always wanted to open a bookstore. One of the things that stood out to me is, you know, looking for specific authors you know, maybe around February, Black History Month, I would see an abundance of those titles, but oftentimes going in um, to larger bookstores, it can prove a bit daunting to find authors that I was looking for. And so I just thought, what a neat way to um, to create a space where BIPOC writers are featured every day. In May of 22, Um, My grandmother passed unexpectedly, and she believed in me when I couldn't believe in myself. After her passing, I just made up my mind, and I said, that's it. I'm doing it. Well, what led you to want to name it after Octavia Butler? Were you a big fan of her work growing up? So I didn't discover her until I was about 16. It was the first time that I actually read a book that included Black people in the future. So I was like, oh, there we are. And so, I mean, um, it's, since then, I just, 
you know, read everything I can get my hands on. Do you remember the first book of hers that you read and and how it impacted you? I think it was Kindred, but I can tell you the Parable series um, I found shortly after, and those were the ones that had the biggest impact. What spoke to you? So science fiction, a lot of what I read just seemed like fantasy. And that's great. And I love that escape. But what was interesting about reading her work is that it still addressed what Black people are going through. I felt a connection there because A, I identified with the characters. There's also several nods to Pasadena, but mostly it was that, you know, she talked about things related to how Black people are experiencing life and what that could look like in the future. Well, there's been a recent resurgence in interest around Octavia Butler's work. Her book Kindred has recently been adapted for TV. It premiered on Hulu last December. And in this scene, the main character, Dana, a Black woman in 1970s L.A., and her white husband, Kevin, get forcibly yanked back in time to a plantation in Maryland. What year is it? It's 1815. Who brought back a white man? You don't want to see all the ways this place will change him. Yeah, it's really exciting because in some of the circles I've been in, you know, over the past 20, 30 years, maybe one out of every 10, 20 people would know about Octavia Butler. And it's so exciting when you meet someone who who reads and enjoys her works. And now um, almost everybody you talk to mentions Octavia Butler. Well, you're opening the store in Pasadena, which is a community where the Black population has been shrinking significantly over the years. Why is it important, you think, to open the space right now in Pasadena specifically? Because we're still here. Mm-hmm. I moved to Pasadena from Chicago in the 70s. And, um, you know, the landscape looks a lot different back then than it does now. But I think it's important to note that we're still here and there are other underrepresented communities that are growing in numbers here. And I want to represent them as well. So tell us about your vision for Octavia's bookshelf beyond, you know, buying and selling books. What are your dreams for the space? So I really see this as a space of community where people from all backgrounds and ages and walks of life can come in. Um, you know, if you are someone with a curious mind and um, enjoy reading stories across multiple genres, I will have specially selected books for everybody. Um I am looking forward to doing author event signings, um, poetry reading. I have a gigantic Scrabble board in the back of the bookstore. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to hosting some Scrabble nights and, you know, a place where we can exchange ideas and book recommendations and um, really just hold each other in support of, of the community. And, you know, readers are just amazing people. So I'm also looking forward to feedback from um, my customers and community um, to make this a fixture in the community. Nikki, when people walk into your store, how do you want them to feel? And what's the feeling that you want them to walk away with when they leave the store? 
I want my customers to feel excited. I want my customers to um, feel seen. You know, I, I told someone a while ago, some books are best friends of mine, right? Like, I know why the caged mm-hmm. bird sings. I go back to that book all the time. And so I hope that my customers will meet a new best friend in the form of a book as well. Nikki High is the owner of Octavius Bookshelf, a bookstore opening in February in Pasadena, focused on BIPOC authors. And that's it for the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED in San Francisco. Our interim senior editor is Katrina Schwartz. Our producer director is Susie Racho. Our sound engineers are Brendan Willard, Christopher Beale, and Jim Bennett. Jessica Carissa is our intern. And I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks so much for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.